0: Well, once again, good morning to you all. It is good to see you. I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided for you in the pew in front of you. And you'll find Luke chapter 7 on page 863. Thank you. Page 863, bottom right-hand corner. We're going to be reading uh, from verse 18 down to verse 35. So I'll go ahead and read the whole passage, big big section of Luke that we're going to be considering this morning, and then I'll ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll get to work. Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling of two disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees, And the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray. Father, we need ears to hear and eyes to see, and so we ask that you would do the miracle that you have so often done in our lives, and that you would open deaf ears and open blind eyes. Let us see your son Jesus this morning. Let us rejoice in him, and by your Holy Spirit, let us be transformed into his likeness and image to the praise of the glory of the grace of God. Amen. Amen. I was in line at Starbucks at Kings Island and enjoying really the only air-conditioned building I could find, and while I was in line, two things that I read grieved me to my soul. The first was the price of the coffee. (laughs) I mean, those nice people in the green aprons, they smile, and it might be friendly smile, but I think it might also be maniacal. (laughs) Like, look at this fool his four drinks. The other thing that I read which grieved me was a post on Instagram. It was a picture of a somewhat well-known Christian author whose books had benefited me, whose ministry I had followed for a little while. And he stood pensive in front of this serene mountain scene. And attached to the picture was the announcement that he had recently left his wife and no longer considered himself a Christian, and I was grieved. He was certainly not the first well-known Christian to do this online, and sadly, he wouldn't be the last. It became somewhat of a trend, with other authors and some pastors and a handful of Christian musicians following suit. It's become known as deconstructing. You may have heard this phrase before. It's a word which is borrowed from philosophy, which in this context means the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs of one's childhood. Sometimes people deconstruct into biblical Christianity. Many times... After the dissection, what they're left with resembles very little of biblical, historical Christianity. At its best, deconstruction is an attempt to ensure that what we believe is truly what the Bible teaches. At its worst, it's a postmodern attempt to replace objective truth for one's individual subjective experience to adapt God's revealed will to one's own sensibilities. Now let's not reject deconstruction wholesale. Many of those who are deconstructing are having a crisis of faith. They're trying to reconcile a discordant reality between the Christianity that they have received and the Christianity that they've experienced. Besides the gospel of Jude tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. So if you hear of a friend or a neighbor who is deconstructing, pray for them. Besides, truth be told, we should all be in a continuous process of humbly cross-checking what we believe about God, about ourselves, about the world, with the Bible, The character, the nature of God, His will for creation has been revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. We don't have to discover what God is, who God is, what He has done, and His will for our life. We only need to receive these things from Scripture. We do need to make sure that what we're receiving is from the Lord. It is not from man or from the spirit of the age. Because, friend, when life hits you with something, it's likely that doubts about God are going to rise to the surface. And I would encourage you to humble yourself and to bring those doubts to the Lord. Here in Luke chapter 7, we learn something precious about the Lord Jesus. He is big enough to handle all your doubts. And he is gentle enough to receive all of your complaints. And he will never turn you away. Bring your doubts and your fears and your disillusionments and your deconstruction to Jesus. With a message like this one, a passage that we're about to consider again, I want you to know your questions, your concerns. Your doubts about the Lord, about the Bible, about God himself, are welcome here. There are people in this very room who have been where you are, who have had questions that you're having, who've been frustrated by the church, who've been hurt, who've even been cynical at times. And so maybe you're here, maybe you are deconstructing. Maybe you're a skeptic. I just want you to know that you're welcomed. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but we do promise to have the one who does. This passage today will help you. Bring your doubts to Jesus. Here's the big idea this morning Jesus Christ can handle all your doubts in humility. Come see him and come hear him. Jesus Christ can handle all your doubts. Humble yourself. Come to see Jesus. Come to hear Jesus. Three parts to guide us through this passage. First, we will see John's clouded view of Jesus in verses 18 to 23. John's clouded view of Jesus. Second, we will see Jesus' clear view of John. Jesus' clear view of John in verses 24 to 28. And then finally, we'll see Jesus crushing indictment against the proud. Jesus crushing indictment against the proud. So we have a lot to cover this morning. And so we should get to work. John's clouded view of Jesus. Let's read it again. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The poor of the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Many of you probably already know this, but this John in this passage is John the Baptist. We've met him before in Luke's gospel back in chapter 1. His birth was announced by an angel. In chapter 3, he came onto the scene preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He called God's people to return to the Lord. He went before the Messiah. He went telling people what the Messiah would do. He foretold that Messiah would come and he would bring the Holy Spirit he would bring fire. He would bring judgment against the unrepentant. John was a loud mouth preacher who pointed to Jesus. I love him. And his preaching is what got him into trouble. He spoke against the sinful lifestyle of Herod Antipas, the Roman governor at the time. And that got old John thrown in the can. And John sends his questions to Jesus through messengers because he's stuck in jail. And John's question tells us a lot about what's going on in John's heart. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Are you the Messiah? Or is there another Messiah? I mean, John knew a lot about the Messiah. He knew the Messiah would come with the Holy Spirit. He knew the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He would come with the Holy Spirit and he would come with fire. He, he knew that he would bring the kingdom of God. And he's heard all about this Jesus who is healing and preaching And what John sees Jesus doing isn't probably what John expected Jesus would do or what he expected how Jesus would do, what he would do. And he's in a crisis. He's had a setback. He's in a hardship. and these things have a way of bringing the deep questions to the surface. First Peter chapter 1 tells us that our sufferings are trials. They're tests of the genuineness of our faith. I mean, it's one thing to believe in the science of a parachute. But it's a whole other thing to jump out of an airplane with one strap to your back. Painful situations are used by the Lord in the same way that fire is used to purify metal. The furnace of affliction brings impurities to the surface where they're burned off. Suffering is the process whereby steel, the steel structure of our faith is hardened. And the Lord's unbreakable grip on our life is proven. And it seems this affliction in John the Baptist's life has brought these questions to the surface. Are you the one? Or is there someone else? You know, I spent my entire ministry pointing to you. I told people to expect a winnowing fork, but all I see in your hand is a salad fork. Are you the one who is to come? Did I get something wrong? Have I wasted my life? And you have to wonder, don't you? As I do. How could the great John the Baptist, so bold, so certain, the man who saw Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the same man who baptized Jesus and saw the Spirit of God descend upon him like a dove and heard the voice of the Heavenly Father saying, This is my beloved Son, that same man. And now he's doubting. How could he doubt? It seems that his suffering had clouded his view of his Savior. You have to understand that John's theology about Jesus was exactly right. He believed Jesus was the Messiah, and Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus would come with a winnowing fork. He would separate the wheat from the chaff. He would bring fire and judgment. And he would do so in his way and in his timing. And so maybe it's the timing that's got John all bunched up. If the great John the Baptizer... Could have seasons of doubt, then that means that you and I probably will too. Has anyone ever been where John is? Wondering? Feeling stuck? Feeling like you don't really understand what it is that God is doing with your life? Maybe you feel like your wheels are spinning. And maybe you've even asked the same question. Are you the one who is to come? You've made promises about what I would see, but what I see is not what you promised I would see. There's discordant realities between what you see, what you believe, and you don't know what to do with that. To you, can I encourage you to do what John did? Send word to Jesus. Send your doubts to Jesus. He's big enough to handle them, he's gentle enough to hear them. John sends questions to Jesus, and we would do well to do the same. Because not not only is the Lord big enough to handle all your questions, not only is he gentle enough to hear all of your complaints, he will answer those doubts in exactly the way you need them answered. Verse, Verse 21 and 22 are glorious. Notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke John for sending his boys to him. Nor does he turn them away. Notice what he does. He points to himself. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed bestowed sight. Look at verse 22. Go and tell John what you have. Two things, seen and heard. In your doubting, look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Jesus patches together several passages from the Old Testament, prophecies about what Messiah would do, and then he shows that he is doing those very things. Tell John what you have seen me do and what you've heard me say. This, church, is what you do with your doubts. Look to Jesus. Listen to his word. This is where you go with your doubts and your deconstruction. Look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible say somewhere, faith comes by hearing? Then the Lord adds this, verse 23 Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Every one of us is going to have to set our expectations about God's promises while trusting in God's timing to bring about those promises. I mentioned it earlier, Christians have been praying for almost 50 years that the Lord would overturn Roe v. Wade. God's will is clear from Scripture. He is faithful to his word. But how and when he accomplishes his will is in his hand, not ours. So how he brings about his will is his prerogative. And so our job is simply to pray with faith and to remain faithful. John the Baptist would never leave that cell. I mean, you you guys probably know the story, don't you? The pervert Herod who threw him in the can cut his head off. This is how the Lord of glory chose to spend the life of the greatest man ever born to a woman. Months of ministry pointing to Jesus, thrown in the can, and then beheaded. You might be wondering, as I am, such a waste. Why this waste? I mean, how much more could John have done if he were sprung out of prison? I mean, God did it for Peter and Paul. But you see, we don't get to choose how the Lord spends the life of his servant. It's his servant. The end of... The fourth gospel. Resurrected Jesus tells Peter that in in, in some time he's going to die as a martyr. And Peter looks at John and says, well, what about him? If I'm going to be a martyr, what about him? Do you you remember what Jesus said to, to Peter? If it's my will that he remain until I return... What's that to you? You follow me. The Lord has given all of us a life to live for his glory. God may grant you a long life. God may grant you martyrdom. The Lord may grant you a large family or a small family. The Lord may give you a spouse or singleness. He may give you riches or he may sustain you through poverty. He may heal your body or he may give you faith to endure. We don't decide how the Lord will bring glory to himself through our lives. We simply trust that he will in his way and his timing and we submit ourselves to his word. Live as you are called. Be faithful with what you have. And do not trouble yourself with God's plan for someone else. You follow me. In hardship, in setbacks, in suffering, bring your fears and your doubts and your anxieties to Christ. He's big enough to handle them. He's gentle enough to hear them. So look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. John's situation may have clouded his view of Jesus, But Jesus saw his servant just as he was. I love this next section, verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? None is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Although our circumstances may cloud our view of our Savior, Jesus saw John exactly as he was. An oak. Unshaken by the wind. God's holy messenger, the one who prepared the way of the Messiah. Not only did Jesus refuse to rebuke John for his questions, he praised John for his strength and his faithfulness in ministry. The Lord affirmed John the Baptist in the eyes of the people. And this is one of the most beautiful realities about Jesus Christ. He sees us as we are, as God has made us fully forgiven, dressed in his righteousness. Your God sees you as you will be in eternity. He sees in you what he has made in you through the crosswork of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit. Martin Luther said it like this, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. (laughs) Dear Christian, God sees in you the very beauty of his son. Do you see how radical the gospel is? On the cross, sinless Jesus gave his life for sinners. Their sin was imputed to him, counted against him as if he had committed them. And at the same time, his righteousness was imputed to them. His righteousness counted as theirs, as if they had lived it. So Christian, when your God looks at your life, your sin is not counted, it is covered. God sees you wrapped in the white linen robes of the righteousness of Christ. And when you understand this, when you begin to live this reality, it changes everything. Will you still sin? Yes. Will you still have doubts and fears and anxieties? Probably but not like those without hope. Because you are a sinner at the same time as you are a saint. It's like the man who was bitten by the venomous snake. Without an antidote, he is going to die. But the moment he receives the antidote, it's as if he is perfectly well. The effect of the medicine takes time, but... He will get better. The gospel makes us perfectly well. Although in this life, the effects of the gospel take time. So even though John and his situation may have allowed doubts to rise to the surface and cloud his view of Jesus, Jesus' view of John is perfectly clear. He's my faithful servant. He's my faithful witness. He's my messenger. Among those born of women, no one is greater than him. At the end of some of our lives, we're not going to cross the finish line into glory with with full run and our hands spread. We're going to be crawling across the finish line with hardly anything left in the tank, and your Savior's going to meet you there and pick you up into his arms and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. What Jesus says next defies the imagination. Jesus, John is the greatest man ever born to a woman, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Let that sink in. The humble sinner who became a Christian this morning is greater than the greatest prophet who's ever lived. (laughs) How can Jesus say this? Like, how many of you have thought to yourself, I'm greater than John. I'm greater than Moses. I'm greater than Abraham. I doubt very many of you, because you're too humble. But it's true, you are. You are greater not because your devotion exceeds their devotion and not because your influence exceeds their influence, but because your knowledge exceeds theirs. You see, something the Old Testament, the thing the Old Testament prophets craved after is the life you live What they saw in shadow, you have in substance. They saw shafts of light peeking through the window when the wind blew the curtain. But in Christ, God has thrown open the curtains and asked you to stand and bask under the sunlight. That's the reality you live. The Bible says, actually, they worked for you. Everything pointed to Jesus. John was the last Old Testament prophet that pointed to Jesus. He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because he saw Jesus, because he baptized Jesus. He put his hands on the one that everyone else saw in glimpses. All of them pointed forward to the reality that you and I live. Kings, prophets long to see the reality that we live every day of our life. That's a remarkable thing and a humbling thing, a profoundly humbling thing. You know what it means? It means that everything in this part of your Bible, every person who lived, that takes up the pages of this part of your Bible lived in preparation for the reality that you walk out every day. God spilled the blood of prophets and kings to bring you to Christ. So it should humble us. And that brings us to the last point. We must come to the Lord with our doubts. And the Bible says when you come to Jesus, come boldly. But don't forget that it is the Lord that you're coming to. And So yes, you come boldly, but you must come humbly. Because there is a difference between doubt and denial. Doubt is humble. Doubt says, I don't know. I need more information. But denial says, no, can't be. I'm done here. And the Lord deals with both. Verse 29. When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And then Jesus says this, To what shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, he played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, you didn't weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. When all the people heard Jesus' accommodation of John the Baptist and his ministry, they declared God just, meaning that they declared that God was right about sin and repentance and the way to be forgiven for sin. The people, the tax collectors, had understood through the preaching of John and now through the preaching of Jesus that they were sinners. They were in need of forgiveness. And they needed to turn to the Lord to be forgiven. But the Pharisees... The tax collectors, or the Pharisees and the lawyers rather, refused to be baptized by John because they refused to acknowledge that they were sinners. They refused to acknowledge that they needed forgiveness because to do so would have been humiliating to them. To admit that you're wrong, to admit you have a problem that you can't fix, is something they would not do because later we'll learn they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. their pride blocked them from seeing their need for Christ. And without Christ, they were lost. And Luke says, devastatingly, that they rejected the purpose of God for their lives. This is one of the problems with those who are deconstructing online. Their expectation of who God is and Christ is, what the church is, what Christianity is, it doesn't match their experience. Their expectation is this, their experience is this. And these things are at odds with each other, which happens. But rather than submitting both their expectations and their experience to the higher authority of God's inerrant word, they reject both. They reject Christ, they reject God's word, they reject the church altogether, which is to say that their experience is more trustworthy than the Bible. Well, I don't think God could say that. There's no way that it means that, so it can't be true. It has to mean this. Which I find ironic. Because the modernist insists upon freedom... To define himself in any way he chooses, while at the same time maintaining that the only truly self-existent being has left his definition up to others, whose sensibilities change with every passing generation. We must bring our doubts to the Lord like John did, but we must come humbly. We must be willing to accept that our experience might be as flawed as our expectations. It's possible, likely even, that both are inaccurate. If we are truly in a search for the truth to assuage our doubt, then we must be willing to accept something that may contradict us to our core. We must come with an ear that is willing to hear something we don't want to hear. We must be willing to submit our beliefs about ourselves and mankind and about God to whatever truth is true. The search for truth requires humility. It requires that we submit our sensibilities to something greater than ourselves. Tim Keller said it right. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And this is something that the Pharisees and the the lawyers would not do. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. Because the reality is that every man possesses the power to bring himself to ruin. By continued pride and self-will, you can bring yourself to everlasting destruction. Friend, don't do that. Humble yourself. Come with an open mind to the pages of Scripture but don't leave your mind open. The whole point of having an open mind is that you would one day close it on something solid. The Lord Jesus issues a crushing indictment against those who reject God's purpose for themselves. He says they're like kids who are never happy. You might have met some of these kids on the playground in elementary school. They won't play no matter what the game is. If it's a happy game, they don't want to play. If it's a sad game, they don't want to play. We played the flute for you, but you wouldn't dance. We sang a funeral dirge, but you wouldn't weep. No matter who comes to you, no matter how they come, they wouldn't respond. These Pharisees and lawyers, arms crossed, brow furrowed, heels dug in. The Lord sent John the Baptist to them who was a steer eating no bread, drinking no wine, calling everyone to repent of their sins and they called him a demoniac. And then the Son of Man, Jesus himself, comes to them eating and drinking and they called him a glutton, a drunk. Some people are like this. This isn't doubt. This is denial. Denial. These folks are unteachable and they're never pleased. And so they'll say, the preacher was too soft. The preacher was too hard. The sermon was too heady. Or it was too emotional. Or he was too aloof. Or he was too worldly. Or that church is too judgy. Or too lenient. It's too casual. It's too stuffy. There's always something. And it makes you wonder, is it truly the messenger they have a problem with? Or is it the message? Yet Jesus says, as we conclude, wisdom is justified by all her children. He means that the multitudes who were responding in faith to the preaching of John, to the preaching of Jesus, who humbled themselves or received the baptism, proved the truth of the message. They justified God's wisdom in sending the one who ate nothing and the other who ate with tax collectors and sinners. The day's coming when all will see that God has used the best means to bring us into situations, into circumstances, to sit under preaching, which at the moment we didn't like, which produced the effect that God willed in our life. The roughness of John, the gentleness of Jesus, to produce the will of God. But we must come humbly. So if you're doubting, if you're a skeptic, this is for you. Humble yourself. Turn to Jesus Christ today. Take your deconstruction to Jesus and reconstruct your life on Him and His Word. See Him and hear Him. Repent of your sins and receive the free gift of God's grace and the righteousness of Christ. Whoever invited you to church today, ask them about that afterward. If you came on your own, I'll be standing by those double doors after the service is over. Come see me. We would love to introduce you and tell you more about this man, Jesus Christ. Take your doubts to the Lord Jesus and come humbly see him and hear him. Let's pray. Father, all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. In him and through him will be fulfilled all that you've promised. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Lord, we have often doubted you. We've lived at times as if there was no God in heaven. There was no one in charge of this world. Will you please forgive us for turning from you instead of turning to you? Forgive us for believing ourselves more than your word. Forgive us for trusting more in what we see with our eyes than what we hear with our ears. Lord, will you grant us to leave our concerns with Jesus Whatever circumstance we're in, give us grace to submit our wills to yours. Give us the faith of Abraham, an assurance of what we cannot see as we look to Christ, and for the city made without hands. Give us the faith of Moses, who considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. And Father, make Jesus big in our eyes and in our minds this week. Give us grace to be faithful to your word in all things as we carry this message to our families, to our workplaces, to our neighborhoods, even to the ends of the earth. For Jesus' praise, amen. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I can read over you the assurance of pardon from Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy.